I'm Dwayne Schultes, and on this best of edition of the Vital Health Podcast, we're looking back on the outbreak of the COVID-19 pandemic and discussions I had with epidemiologist Martin Kohldorf and political scientist Wilfred Riley. At that time, there were already serious questions being asked about COVID-19 policies, and both men were expressing skepticism of the political approaches being advocated by governments. We begin our interview with Martin Kohldorf, a biostatistician at the Harvard Medical School since 2003, and a co-author of the Great Barrington Declaration. The interview was first released on June 19, 2020. Martin, it's truly a pleasure to speak to you today. Uh, very nice speaking to you, Dwayne. So you were recently quoted in Spiked saying, in epidemiology, our frustration is with anti-vaxxers. Most anti-vaxxers are highly educated, but still argue against vaccination. We now face a similar situation with anti-herders who view herd immunity as a misguided option strategy rather than a scientifically proven phenomena that can prevent unnecessary deaths. In your opinion, why is the herd strategy the correct one? I don't view herd immunity as a strategy. It is a scientifically proven fact that exists. And uh, by the nature of COVID-19, I believe that uh, whatever strategy we use, we will eventually reach herd immunity, either through a vaccine or through natural infection. So the key thing is really to uh, find a strategy that will minimize the number of deaths until we reach herd immunity. Why do you think there's been such a pushback in government against herd immunity? Uh, I don't know. That's a very good question. Uh, I think many in government are not familiar with uh, uh, epidemiology, uh, which is also true for many scientists in other fields. Uh, if we look at uh, the UK, for example, uh, there was a famous or infamous report from Imperial College where they uh, predicted many, many deaths from COVID-19. And I think that scared a lot of politicians. Uh, at the same time, um, the media and the politician ignored um, other infectious disease technologists like uh, Dr. Sunita Gupta at Oxford University, uh, who is an excellent epidemiologist working on infectious diseases. And she rightly pointed out that uh, we did not know uh, what these uh, parameters are. So there's no way of knowing if there will be many deaths or fewer deaths. So basically what Imperial College did, they made a guess about the infection fatality ratio. And then they plugged that guess into their, their sophisticated mathematical model, uh, pretending that what came out was somehow... Uh, a valid estimate of death when it's really, if you put in a guess as a parameter in the model, you also get out a guess. So that was a purely guess from their perspective at a time when we didn't really know. But but it's interesting because if you look back at March, a couple of weeks ago, I had a podcast with Dr. Riley, who's another contributor to Spiked, and we discussed an article that had ran in Stat Magazine by Professor John Neonidas at Stanford, where he'd done a complete statistical analysis of the Diamond Princess cruise line. And what's interesting there, and that's data that came from February and March, that was a hard endpoint. And if you extrapolated out that data, it showed that actually we would be seeing numbers sim more similar to what we're seeing now. But yet it seems that got ignored, even though that was hard data in exchange for people, as you rightly say, looking at say, the Imperial College epidemiological study, as well as other studies out of the University of Washington that looked to be orders of magnitude incorrect upon reflection. Why do you think we didn't follow what was the hard evidence and went instead for the worst-case scenario, as it were? 
Uh, I think there was also a lot of uncertainty in the estimate uh, that Unadidis uh, 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 came up with because uh, on the Diamond cruise ship, there was mostly an elderly population. And to find the infection fatality ratio, you have to look at the whole population. So I think uh, that uh, Sunita Gupta at Oxford did the right call and saying that at this time, we didn't know what the infection fatality ratio was. It could be lower, it could be, be higher. And that was an uncertainty. And I think it's sort of irresponsible, irresponsible of ethnologists to then claim that this is the number of deaths we're going to see, like Neil Ferguson did. Yeah. And you're right. I mean, the data was not only from the Princess cruise ship. There was data at this time from Wuhan that I looked myself. Sure. We, could con- we couldn't conclude there from what the infection fatality ratio was because there are so many people that were asymptomatic. So they were infected, but uh, they were not uh, symptomatic. So they were not known. It was not known how many people actually had been infected leading to the death that was seen in Wuhan. But if you look at what happened with Stanford then who did their study, and then there was the epidemiological work that was done in Italy with the Red Cross, as we started seeing larger numbers, it turned out that in fact, the infection rate was not nearly as high as people thought it was. And the disease was very, it wasn't equally spread heterogeneously through the whole age population. For example, in New York City, one third of all deaths in the United States, the death rate for people 18 to 45 is 0.01% or 10 per 100,000. For those 18 or under, the death rate statistically is zero per 100,000. If we look at a lockdown, then it's an experiment with a 99.99% false positive rate. Which approach should we be using then? You're pointing out the key thing we do know about COVID and which we knew a long time ago from the very first data coming out of Wuhan, and that is that there are enormously different risks by age groups. So New York City reflects that, the early data from Wuhan reflects that, and that has been seen across the whole world. So the risk is very, very high in those in the 70s and the 80s. It's high in the 60s. For people below 50, it's very low and it's almost non-existence in children. For example, I looked actually today at the National Center for Health Statistics. And since February 1st, there has been, I think there was 26 deaths in children under the age of 15. That can be compared with 100 deaths in influenza during the same period and over 100 in pneumonia as well as, I think, about six, 7,000 total deaths. So for children, this is uh, much less serious than influenza, but for the older people, it's a more serious disease than influenza. So what makes sense from a public health perspective is you want to protect those that are at highest risk, and that's the elderly, and plus a few other risk groups like people with diabetes. So it makes sense to do as much as we can to protect the elderly, uh, so they don't have to go to the supermarket. They can be deliver their food to their homes. Uh, we make sure that uh, they are not exposed in elder, in nursing homes, etc. While there's no reason to uh, specifically protect uh, young people, so they sh- should uh, continue to make sure the society keeps operating. So to close schools while not protecting nursing homes is the very opposite. A strategy or what one should use. One should protect the nursing homes and keep the schools open. Of course, I live in Belgium and protecting the nursing homes is something that Belgium has not done particularly well. Uh, neither is New York. Unfortunately, we see a large clustering of death and mortality in those facilities. What do we need to do then practically to protect nursing homes? What would you recommend, doctor? 
Well, at this point, there are people who have had COVID-19. So, uh, I, and we know that either because they had a positive test uh, uh, for concurrent disease some time ago, or they had antibodies. So, these are the people that we should use to take care of those uh, elderly people in nursing homes that need care. So, they should be tested and uh, make sure that they, uh, they are immune so that they can spread the disease to... Uh, to the nursing homes. Now, Sweden, of course, has taken the approach of herd immunity and has paid a high price in the media. They've had a ton of criticism for that approach. But yet, if you look at the data, deaths are still falling at less than 25 per day right now. You've been a staunch advocate of the Swedish approach. Why do you think there's been such hostility towards it? And have you personally paid a political price for that opinion? Uh, well, Sweden also has some problems protecting the nursing homes in the Stockholm area. So it hasn't been a perfect strategy. But uh, Sweden never closed the elementary schools and the middle schools. And I think that was the right decision. They never closed the restaurant. They let people uh, go about their normal life uh, while... Uh, urging people uh, the over 70 to stay home and self-isolate. We can see, for example, if we look at the antibody tests, that's places like Spain, parts of the U.S., and even Iran have higher proportion of elderly with antibodies than the working-age people. So among the, the elderly, there are higher percentage of people with antibodies than there are among the working people, which means that they have been exposed a lot. As a comparison, when the Sweden did the test, the percent with antibodies was less than half in those above 65 versus the working age people. So therefore, it's clear that Sweden, to some extent, has succeeded in protecting the elderly while the disease has been spreading among those people who are at very little risk. I think that is the right approach because that will minimize the number of COVID-19 deaths by the end of this pandemic. And one problem, I think, in the media is that people are looking at the number of deaths right now. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense for a variety of reasons. But one is that if obviously there's more deaths in those places where the COVID has, has come and, and gone through the population. So we should really look at the number of deaths per infected. That is the sort of a better measurement on how successful a country is. And on that measure... With the very limited data we have so far, is doing, Sweden is doing, doing quite well. So to measure the number of deaths, uh, for example, right, right now, that's like uh, measuring a marathon race uh, by who is leading after one kilometer or after five kilometer. Uh, any decent runner could, I'm sure, be ahead of the pack after one kilometer if they wanted to, yes, by running very fast, but they're going to get exhausted and be way behind by the end of the the race. Right. And it's similar with an epidemic like COVID-19. Yes, it's possible to completely lock down and reduce the number of deaths. But at some point, you're going to have to remove the lockdown, and uh, then you're going to have to deal with the situation uh, at that time instead. But Martin, that requires political will and, and a certain amount of intestinal fortitude to take some political heat. Obviously, the Swedes have been willing to do that, it seems. Why do you think other politicians haven't had that ability or willingness? Is it just we're in election year, the media's on a frenzy? What do you think it is? Yeah, you're right. I mean, Sweden has taken a lot of heat, both internationally, but also domestically, not by by infectious disease uh, expert or epidemiologist, but uh, by other scientists who are not so well-versed in infectious disease epidemiology. 
I don't know the answer to your question. I think that's an interesting thing that political scientists and health policy uh, academics will have to study in the next few years. I think there will be very interesting uh, studies on that. Getting back to the discussion about the epidemiological studies that set policy, what it seems is you've had two camps. You've had the camps such as yourself. We mentioned John Ioannidis, certainly the work we did, the work Wilfred Riley did, where we grabbed hard data and ran statistical regressions and multivariate analysis. And and the people who looked at the hard data seemed to have been more accurate than those folks who ran the large epidemiological models. Why do you think there's been such a difference in approach? And why do you think that those hard models, the statistical models, were not adopted as policy? I think that there is uncertainty in many of these estimates of uh, infections, fatality rates in the R, R naught, in what is needed to receive herd immunity. We still do not know uh, what percentage is needed for herd immunity. We still don't know what the infectious fatality rate is, and we still don't know what R naught or current values of R. We're still not even terribly sure of the vectors either. <laughs> yeah, so there, and, and that's natural because this is a new disease, so there's very much we don't know. But the one thing we do know so clearly is this big difference in risk by age. So that's the uh, COVID-19 is a formidable enemy to deal with, a very serious disease and a terrible disease that's going to lead, has led to and will lead to many more deaths. But to fight it, we can't sort of put our heads in the sand and just try to run away. We have to utilize the weaknesses of our enemy. And the weaknesses of our enemy in the sense is that this disease is not a high-risk disease for people under age 50. So we have to use that fact to deal with it and let those under 50 generate the herd immunity that will then protect the elderly. There was, I think, consensus among ecologists that we had to flatten the curve. So that was sort of the first thing, and I think that was right, because we can't overwhelm the healthcare system uh, to such an extent that we can't treat properly treat those people who get sick. So that was a problem in, in Italy and Spain, but in the rest of the world, at least in the Western world, uh, we have managed to flatten the curve sufficiently that the hospitals has not been overburdened. So that was a good thing. But there is now an attempt to sort of stamp out the disease which I think is not going to be successful. So we have to now protect the elderly, but the longer it takes until we reach herd immunity, the harder it will be to protect the elderly because they have to self-isolate. So in Sweden, they have been self-isolating for about three months now. They're going to have to continue that for another couple of months. Uh, we don't know exactly how much until herd immunity is reached, but it's very hard for people in a place where who, for the old people who have isolated themselves now for a few months, but we're nowhere even near uh, herd immunity, so they're going to have to self-isolate for even longer. They're almost starting from the beginning at that point. Yeah, and that's going to lead to more death because you cannot uh, self-isolate for forever because at some point you have to go to the doctor or you have to do this or you have to do that. So it's impossible to do it for too long without getting more negative uh, consequences. So there's sort of a balance. You have to do a little bit of social distancing to, to flatten the curve, and you have to do social distancing to protect the elderly. But you also have to let young people who are voluntarily willing to do so to uh, live their normal life, and uh, that way we will get herd immunity. 
The other problem, of course, with herd immunity, uh, with the lockdown, is that it's not only problems with COVID-19, there are also an untold number of other health effects from the lockdown. Yeah, of course, cancer screening, cardiovascular screening, uh, stress. We've seen in an article recently in the San Francisco Chronicle that talks about they're seeing higher suicide rates than they are COVID-19 rates. Are you seeing things emerging like this in your data at Harvard? Uh, I haven't looked at the, the suicide rate specifically, but obviously that's just the tip of the iceberg of any other mental health problems. But it's, uh, it's so much bigger than uh, the mental health. I mean, you mentioned cancer screening. That's one thing. But unlike COVID-19 and unlike suicides, uh, cancer screening is not going to lead to more death in the next few weeks or next few months. Right. Those consequences will happen. I mean, the failure to do screening now will have consequences a year from now and two years from now and three years from now and that kind of mortality. Sure. COVID-19 consequences we see on a weekly basis. And suicide is another uh, thing that we sort of a rare thing that we also see at such short term notice. But uh, most other things is much more long term consequences that we are sort of now stuck in. Another thing is uh, some of my colleagues at CDC uh, wrote uh, a few weeks ago a, a paper showing that the vaccination rate of children has plummeted yeah. way, way down. And of course, as long as the lockdown is in place, the lockdown doesn't only protect from COVID-19, it also protects from the spread of other infectious diseases like measles or uh, meningococcal disease, etc. So we don't see any increase in that right now. But my fear is that once the lockdown is lifted, we have to be very careful about uh, outbreaks of uh, childhood diseases like measles. And we have to really make sure that uh, the vaccinations of children are being catching up with that when the lockdown is lifted. I'd like to pick up on something you said about your work at the CDC. Obviously, you've been involved in the evaluation of many of the vaccine trials. The MRA vaccines have not had a huge amount of success attacking coronavirus. We haven't had a successful vaccine for AIDS. We haven't had one for SARS. We haven't had one for MERS. It seems the politicians are sitting on the back of their heels hoping that by not going for herd immunity, they will have a vaccine sooner than later. What are the odds of that? How is it looking from your perspective? So I serve on the committee to evaluate uh, vaccine safety, the CDC committee to evaluate the uh, safety of any future COVID-19 uh, uh, vaccine. Uh, we have had one meeting so far, but uh, that's, that's because we don't have any vaccines to evaluate yet. <laughs> sure. Uh, there are dozens of vaccines that are in the, in the pipeline in the sense that they're developing them. Most of them will not be successful, that's for sure. Hopefully, there will be one or two that are successful, that both have efficacy and that is safe, so it doesn't have any bad side, side effects. But we don't know. I mean, you pointed out that uh, with age, we have tried to get a vaccine for a long time. We still don't have a good vaccine. And the same for many other diseases. So for some diseases, we have very good vaccines, uh, like measles. Uh, for some, we have vaccines, but they're not great. Like the influenza vaccine is not a great vaccine. Uh, some years it works fine, and other years it works less good. I don't dare to make a guess of a timeline because 
if we're lucky, we'll have we'll have one sometime in 2021. But uh, if we're unlucky, it might take many, many years, or we might never have a vaccine. And if we're unlucky, then those who have been pursuing herd immunity will come out much better, one would think. Uh, that would be my expectation, yes. I'm not optimistic about having a vaccine soon, but uh, I hope I'm wrong. I guarantee there are a bunch of politicians who agree with that, too. <laughs> yes. We're in a very strange place politically. Last week, as you know, many of the people who've been advocating for hard lockdowns despite the economic impacts also supported the large public protests. You're at Harvard, in many ways, the center of wokeism. What do you think will be the impact if we keep politicizing decisions that should be based on sober data analysis? I think it's a very strange situation we're in because the lockdown is most severely affecting those that are economically vulnerable, the working class. Because while people like you and me uh, have been ordered, at least I have been ordered to work from home, and we can work from home. Uh, journalists can work from home. Politicians can, in most cases, work from home, etc. Uh, most people in the working class cannot work from home. So either they are working uh, the normal jobs and they are being exposed to COVID-19, or they have been laid off. The consequence of the lockdown, the burden falls unproportionately on the working class, on the economically vulnerable. And because of nature of infectious diseases, even more so among the urban population who lives in New York City, for example, because like with most infectious diseases, uh, they spread more easily in an urban setting than in a, in a rural area. So uh, the urban poor are the ones that are mostly hit by the lockdown. So in essence, uh, what the politicians and the media are doing, the young college kids, which are very, very low risk for COVID-19, are protected. Young professionals who can work from home are also with low risk are protected. And then the ones who take up the burden of generating herd immunity are the working class, the urban poor, etc. It's a very, very sad result of this lockdown on those that, uh, groups of the society that are most vulnerable. It's sort of hard to imagine that anybody can be pro-lockdown, like a complete universal lockdown, and at the same time uh, sympathetic to the most vulnerable, economically most vulnerable people in society, and especially those in urban areas. Do you think it's just a matter of political expedience? I know something about uh, infectious diseases and about disease outbreak, but the politics of, uh, <laughs> of COVID-19 uh, is startling and is something I don't understand. Political scientist Wilfred Riley is a well-known contrarian on Twitter, a.k.a. X. He is an associate professor of political science at Kentucky State University and was an outspoken critic of lockdowns on the basis his research found no evidence of their effectiveness. He is also the author of several best-selling books on race, politics, and culture in America. And this interview was first broadcast on May 22, 2020. Wilfred, it's truly a pleasure to meet you. I'm a huge fan of your work. Thank you. Pleasure to be here as well. I read your analysis on April 28th, and I was really impressed. Can you please outline the thesis of the article as well as the core bit of your findings? Sure. What I was interested in was whether there was empirical hard evidence for the efficacy of these COVID-19 lockdowns. 
because you often saw um, what seemed to be almost a moral debate with one side saying, well, you're putting senior citizens at risk and the other side saying, well, you're closing my restaurant, my small business and a bit of an angry back and forth developing. And outside of a couple examples in New York, I didn't see much attempt to see, at least at that point, I mean, you're talking about mid-April, how states that did not lock down, but instead were practicing a pretty stringent social distancing regime were doing as versus those states that did lock down in terms of number of COVID cases, number of COVID deaths. So that's essentially what the first piece was. And as you mentioned, it's called There's No Empirical Evidence for These Lockdowns. But I looked at the block of U.S. states, and you could define this as between seven and nine, depending on how you look at South Carolina, depending on how you look at Oklahoma, but that never locked down. And there were quite a few of these for what I guess you'd call constitutional reasons. I mean, South Dakota's governor has given some eloquent explanations of why she didn't. But um, quite a few fairly large states in that group. Uh, Utah, for example, is in that group. Arkansas fell in that group. Iowa fell in that group, although they did, for example, close internal service for bars and restaurants. It's important to be honest about what happened state by state. I took that group of states that did not lock down, and essentially, in the first piece, I compare them to all the states that did lock down. So first, I look at whether there are more cases and deaths in the social distancing states than in the lockdown states. That's an extremely crude metric, but you have to understand that throughout this conversation, there have been pieces published like the Atlantic, uh, Georgia's experiment in human sacrifice, that have just openly argued you'd see what have been called death states in the non-lockdown states. So this is a crude first metric. And what I find is, no, there were actually fewer cases uh, and fewer deaths in the uh, non-lockdown social distancing states on average. The difference wasn't enormous, but it was in favor of the social distancing states. So next, I adjusted for population, because although, again, you're not talking about tiny places, you're talking about Utah or Arkansas or Oklahoma, but you are talking about states that are a bit smaller than New Jersey. You need to make that adjustment. So I did a standard adjustment, a pop one million and looked at whether there were more cases and deaths on average in the um, social distancing states and the lockdown states. And again, I found, no, the social distancing states once again outperformed the lockdown states. As I recall, um, at this point, mid-April, on average in the social distancing states, there were 12 deaths per million individuals in the state. And in the lockdown states, there were 54 deaths per million individuals in the state. And again, correlation doesn't equal causation. So you could argue that if you're looking at equivalent states, you may be more likely to lock down if you're getting harder hit in your one big city or whatever, obviously. But at very least, we kind of shattered the death states narrative. Um, the social distancing states were experiencing on a per capita basis less deaths than the lockdown states. In fact, that relationship was clearer at the per million level than it was originally. And finally... I did a regression analysis, and this is a standard linear model data, but I mean, it included most of the independent variables that you've really heard about, I think, in this debate. So population, population density, minority population percentage, median age, so on down the line. Uh, obviously, the strategy used by a state, did you lock down or did you implement social distancing? And once again, I want to clarify, well done social distancing doesn't mean holding indoor parties only for grandmothers. <laughs> I mean, there's an entire strategy that goes into medical social distancing, giving six feet, uh, suggesting or requiring that people wash their hands, you know, managed entrance and egress from businesses. My own background is in the business world before academia. Masks, I don't really see a problem with as long as people understand what they're doing, the positives and the negatives there. So all of that goes into social distancing. But again, 
that would be the strategy A as versus strategy B of lockdown. That was one of the variables in the model, uh, simply binary term. And what I found was that population had a very significant effect, obviously, on the number of COVID cases and the number of COVID deaths at a state. Uh, that was statistically significant at P equals 0.05 in both cases. Simply put, the more people you have in a state, whatever your strategy is, when you have a very large, very concentrated population, you're going to have more problems with a plague, if you will, with an unexpected epidemic disease. That's unfortunate, but that's real. I mean, people have for thousands of years fled the city for their country home when this kind of thing has happened. There's a reason for that. Density approach significance, it would reach significance in later models. But those were the variables that had an influence of any kind, uh, again, in this regression run with multiple independent variables in the model. Strategy had no effect at all. As I recall, P for strategy was 0. 0.940. Yeah. So there was- Basically random. It was <laughs> roll a dice. Yeah. Yeah. A 94% chance that you're looking at nonsense. So it's just, <laughs> it, it, I didn't find anything. That's, that's the, without- over amplifying my results or without rambling on, there was very, very little evidence for the efficacy of locking down rather than implementing social distancing and basically trusting people to follow the rules. This produced such a follow-up, I mean, in terms of comments on the internet, um, in terms of pretty serious inquiries, uh, myself and uh, I don't think these gentlemen would mind me noting this, Peter Steinmetz, who's a pretty well-known physician, and Morgan Frank, who actually runs a hedge fund focused on healthcare. The three of us are going to be submitting some papers. We all know what we're doing. There's a chance to make an actual contribution to this debate at a fairly high level. So from internet comments to serious follow-ups to a bit of a backlash, all of that was produced. But the actual conclusion, I haven't necessarily seen, at least at the level of those states, really rebutted. Yeah. You can talk about r naught and other things that might vary between those states, but the death states idea, that there was no evidence for that. And Wilfred, that's what impressed me about this, because we had run a similar regression, which I'd sent you on April 4th, a few weeks earlier, and we had a very similar result to yours. We found that population was statistically significant, but really the, the correlation we found was between testing and then deaths. And th the reason why was that the testing was so underserved at that point, no one knew how prevalent the disease was. And the more testing you did, you suddenly realize, well, wait a minute, we're not at 3% mortality. We're actually down at 0.05% or 0.04%, much, much lower. Oh, yeah. Your statistics had a very strong, what we would call an R-square residual error solved. You have a very robust model. These lockdowns should be, at, at the very least, getting questioned. <laughs> were you surprised that so many governments were insisting on lockdowns given your result? No, because I think that um, the quants in the general science and engineering and medical community got into this game a bit late. Mm -hmm. um, and to some extent, that's because you don't want to comment on another man or woman's area of specialty to some extent. I mean, I think that there were papers in the field of epidemiology that really, really, uh, to be blunt, panicked the world that came out very early on. I mean, I can think of a couple specific estimates. I mean, obviously, we all know Neil Ferguson. I mean, Ferguson said, if I recall him correctly, that the uh, IFR, not CFR, for COVID-19 would be around 1%. Infection rate would be 80%. And uh, any mitigation short of lockdown or close wouldn't do much. Um, and his initial projection for COVID deaths was 2.2 million in the USA, 500,000 in Great Britain. That, yeah. that was the first thing government officials read. And I don't think most of them got past 2 million deaths, to be honest. There were other um, estimates in this vein. I mean, Fauci came out. I don't know why, 
But he estimated, normally very solid doctor, but he estimated 2% uh, fatality rate for COVID. Um, I don't know whether that was an IFR or CFR, but again, all the papers said was 2%. WHO, using what we now know to be very questionable Chinese data, said 3.4% was the, the general population fatality rate for COVID-19. And I think that when people looked at uh, Ferguson's 2.2 million and WHO's 3.4% death rate among everyone, they just shut down. Yeah. That was it. I mean, as we'd say playing basketball, it's a wrap. I mean, it was, <laughs> that was the three pointer from the corner. There was no, no one was waiting for some engineer or some political scientist to say, okay, there's some problems with these models. <laughs> I will say very quickly um, Ferguson's model, Ferguson's actual modeling strategy at the level of what he inputted into, a, I'm assuming, Stata or R, even the computer coding code underlying that has come under some very serious attack recently. I'd encourage everyone to read that to the extent that people have been speculating online that if they turned that in as part of their dissertation, they would not have been graduating. It, there's a very serious question about, I'm not an expert in that field, not going to speculate in detail. There's a very serious question about what we've been following for a month or two. Even if that 1% estimate had been correct, was the model curve that Ferguson came up with accurate? Um, again, I don't think that was checked very early on. What I find ironic in that is if you remember, even before Neil Ferguson's model was published, generally one of the first big articles that had come out against the WHO position was uh, John Ioannidis' paper in STAT yeah. based on the extrapolation of data from the Diamond Princess cruise line. Now, I remember yeah. looking at that thinking, okay, now this makes sense to me. And if you look at what the Swedes did and what Florida did and what Georgia did, generally one could say, okay, they sort of committed to that strategy, as did the Dutch and as did initially the Brits. And then boom, the Imperial College model blew up everybody's percentages. Can you give us an overview on what Professor Ianita said? Because you also refer to that in your initial modeling. Yes, I can. And you're absolutely right that Britain initially was pursuing essentially a herd immunity strategy. And then the Imperial College bombshell landed. So what you saw with the transition to lockdowns in Britain, and I'd go so far as to say Northern Europe, was a direct result of Imperial College. When people ask, you know, jokingly on something like a golf course, you know, what do you guys do in those ivory towers? What do you guys do in those think tanks or in those biotech companies? Change the world. I mean, <laughs> these things have an enormous, enormous impact. When major policy papers like this come out, you very frequently see government positions shift overnight. And it is very important. And again, I don't know the exact quality of Ferguson's computer code. You almost feel sympathetic for someone at that level of publication caught up in the governmental spotlight. But it's very important that the work that produces these policy changes be good, be monitored, and be responded to by other intelligent individuals in society. At any rate, uh, John Ioannidis has kind of been the anti-Ferguson through a lot of this debate. What Ioannidis has said over and over is that we're making major world-changing decisions on the basis of bad, insufficient information. So one of the things uh, Dr. Ioannidis wanted to do very early on is look at actual to the extent you could find them, randomized representative environments where COVID-19 had unfortunately been allowed to operate, where the virus had run loose, where there had been an outbreak of COVID. And one of those was the Diamond Princess Cruise Liner, which was, um, I, I don't understand the flagging of cruise ship companies, but an American <laughs> ship, essentially. Where American ship the, in quotes, I think, probably. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
chartered in Liberia or whatever the hell they do for tax reasons. Exactly. But that's why it's so hard to get them to dock when there's a disease outbreak, by the way. That's not just cruelty. It's sort of like, well, you said you weren't from here for many years, good buddy. It's an insurance liability nightmare. <laughs> but at any rate, Absolutely. but um, essentially, the Diamond Princess cruise liner saw an outbreak of COVID-19. Um, if you want to debate potentially different strains of the disease, that wouldn't have been a case. This was very early on. This was when the epidemic began. And this went on on the ship for weeks. I think that pretty much everyone that could have been stricken by the bug was. And what you saw was, first of all, the final infection rate for the disease, as I recall, was 17.9%, which is very typical for severe flus. It wasn't 85% or anything like that. That's one thing uh, Ian just took note of. And secondarily, the fatality rate for COVID was about 1%, which seems somewhat on par with estimates we've seen. But one of the things that he did was make an adjustment for the age of the passengers on the cruise ship. There's a very old hackneyed joke that cruise ship passengers tend to be newlyweds or nearly deads. <laughs> um, and in this case, you had more perhaps in the second category. The average age on the ship, as I recall, was something like 72. So he plotted the deaths on the Diamond Princess by age category against the actual age curve of the U.S. population. And he noticed as soon as he ran his figures that that would have equated to a 0.125% death rate against the U.S. population overall. So what he said was that he saw an 18% infection rate and he saw a perhaps 0.15% fatality rate for COVID-19 in the most representative environment that he could find. And he started looking for more information of that kind. And his quote is, that's when I saw the denominator problem. Right. And this, to me, is one of the big issues with the initial estimates for COVID-19 fatality rate. Most of these came from the CFRs for the tested population of individuals to first go in to take the first COVID tests and then be monitored as essentially live or die cases. The problem with this was that it was very, very difficult for a long time to take a test for COVID-19. Um, I was finally able to take a COVID-19 antibody test through Quest Diagnostics about a week ago. Interesting. Are you clear? Did you Have you had it? Don't know yet, actually. Um, <laughs> it's, a, it's an interesting situation. My fiance is clear. Okay. They told her within two days. So I strongly suspect I might have had COVID-19 at some point. There actually was a period where, on the advice of a doctor, I self-quarantined for a bit. Sure. But this gets this gets into the denominator problem um, issue, actually, at a fairly personal level. For quite a while in the United States, it was extremely difficult to take a test for COVID-19. Um, at least in Kentucky, the rule was that you had to be sick and symptomatic. You had to have actually come into contact with a person that had COVID-19. And this is someone that would be named who, apparently, they would then verify. And obviously, you had to go through this sort of scary process of contacting a hospital to request the test for this frightening new disease. You had to be that worried about what was going on with your body. So what we actually saw was that the original testing pool for COVID-19 was extremely unrepresentative. It was made up primarily of sick and symptomatic, you'd assume locally influential, bluntly, seniors. And that's where the death rates that we've been seeing across countries for COVID come from. In the USA today, the, if you look at Worldometer's coronavirus or an information source like that, the death rate for COVID-19 is still around 5%. But that reflects the pool of people 
the number of deaths against the number of people that have taken the official test for COVID-19, obviously. Correct. What Dr. Ioannidis pointed out is that there must be, we don't know exactly what it is, but there must be a much larger pool of people that have contracted COVID that have been told to stay home by their doctors or whatnot. Um, and the actual IFR for the disease comes from taking that block of individuals against the number of deaths. So um, what Stanford originally did was study the Vo region of Italy, if I have that correct, and they found that there were antibodies for COVID-19 in about 3.3% of the population. Uh, based on the number of deaths in Italy at that time, Dr. Ioannidis and I think Dr. Bhattacharya on this one estimated um, an, actual, an IFR for COVID-19 of 0.12%, 0 0.06 to 0.12%. Um, that obviously is not going to be what we end up with in the final run. It's not going to be the last piece of data we see. But his point throughout this entire process has been we're making very, very major decisions on the basis of very, very limited data. If we actually look at the results of major serological tests down the road, we're not going to see an IFR that's anything like 3%, anything like 2%, probably anything like 1%. So shutting down society on the basis of that upper end 3% estimate is asinine. And I think that that comment has survived much better, has stood the test of time much better than Dr. Ferguson's. I, I agree completely. And if you look at the work that Stanford did in Santa Clara County, 2% of the population had had exposure. You had the test in Germany that found that actually 15% of the population in the town of North Rhine-Westphalia had actually already had exposure. Again, putting the numbers down. It seems like as we're getting more data, quants early on the curve are looking more and more correct. And this is sort of your wheelhouse now, Wilfred. This is where you live. You love to call sacred cows and use mathematical tests and say, is there logic here? Why do you think we've gone from numerical logic to religious orthodoxy related to the way we're treating the lockdowns and how we're handling the disease? That's a very interesting question. I, I will say I was that's a good question. I was more prepared for uh, some of the mathematical uh, <laughs> ones, honestly. <laughs> I think that we're in a period of orthodoxy in our society, actually. I'm not entirely sure why this is, but what we've very definitely seen is the Overton window on the left and to some extent the hard right in American discourse shrink dramatically. Is it a window anymore? Is it sort of a wing window? or Kind of the Overton arrow slit. <laughs> I mean, there's not a, not a whole lot there. But I mean, issues that I don't consider incredibly controversial, are there small intellectual or athletic differences between the races? And by that, I don't mean controversial in the sense that you couldn't argue. Of course, there's a passionate argument, but I don't necessarily think it matters given what the end result might be and what its size is. Selective immigration could be a way to respond to that, for example, depending on what we found the results to be. That's something that almost can't be discussed. Differences between men and women. We fired a president of Harvard because he speculated that we, I mean, I wasn't on the board at the time, but I mean, <laughs> he speculated that men might be better at quantitative rapid sequence decision making and women might be better speech makers and theoretical thinkers. I don't think this would strike most people in a marriage as all that controversial. But I mean, again, he was, he was shown the door very rapidly. I, I'm not saying that's absolutely true. But again, seems like something that could be discussed. Many, many topics, uh, sexuality, race, immigration. Uh, one of the most controversial things I said in my most recent book, Taboo, I was absolutely shocked by this. 
turned out to be my proposal that we admit only, what was it, sane, non-criminal, mostly healthy and able-bodied people that could pass an IQ test or otherwise get a job. I thought that was just a throwaway sequence. Um, it was immediately described as a cruel policy that would block mentally <laughs> ill immigrants from the United States or, for example, individuals with AIDS. Uh, I've been asked about it in probably half the interviews I've done. Would you bar mentally ill immigrants with HIV, for example? <laughs> probably. At any rate, uh, we're in a period where questioning a wide variety of norms on both the left and on the extreme right seems to be something that is punished in social discourse almost as it would be in that Victorian period. And you're right that lockdown skepticism seems to have become one of these things. I, If I had to speculate, I would say that that's because of the political association of lockdowns with the mainstream center left. Yeah. So, for example, I mean, the governor that we associate with lockdown policy is probably Cuomo. If you took a standard anonymized poll of the citizenry, I mean, the person you associate with the skeptical position might be Trump or it might be a brash Republican governor like DeSantis. I mean, if you looked at who would be seen as a lockdown skeptic, it might be a face painted working middle class protester with a gun or a protest sign. So I think that this this kind of politicization, mm -hmm. I'm gonna do a rambling sideline here. I have an issue with the politicization of issues that don't have a damn thing to do with politics in the first place, like hunting or the environment. The UK's done okay, done not great, not poor, sort of middle end of the pack, probably, but they are getting eviscerated in the media as to how they're handling the crisis. It would appear that a lot of this is retribution or at least payback for the Brexit vote. It would appear that this has a lot to do not necessarily with what's happened with the actual results on the ground related to COVID-19 or the strategy to improve lives, but it's really political payback. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's some elephants in the room in this COVID debate that are really being obscured by these asinine political fights. Um, the biggest elephant in the room is, once again, that the social distancing states and countries don't seem to be doing any worse, at least not substantially worse than the locked down states and countries. It, it, this is my opinion, but there seems to be a conscious desire on the part of a lot of the European media to see Sweden fail. Mm -hmm. Over and over and over again, you see these stories like, when will the breaking point come? Or you'll see these comparisons only of Sweden to Norway and Denmark without noting that those countries have less than half the population of Sweden, pointing out that there are three to four times as many deaths in Sweden, perhaps a bit more now. You're talking about 4,000 deaths as versus, say, 1,500 in a smaller population country after two to three months of this disease crisis with a largely intact economy, that does not appear to me, although I mourn every loss, to be an apocalyptic disaster. Yes. I mean, there's an element of the absurd to this. Whether or not it's outperforming the under Scandinavian countries, Sweden is doing better, generally speaking, than the UK. I mean, it's doing better than Belgium, Spain, Italy. The first assumption the British media seems to be making is that a lockdown strategy rather than a well-done social distancing strategy is having a dramatic effect. And I think that's currently being debated in the literature. I also think it's fairly unfair to blame politicians of one party or the other for picking one strategy or the other. This is, as the media endlessly tells us, the novel coronavirus. So I don't think anyone knew what we were getting into when this started. In fact, actually, if you're coming from a right or center-right perspective in the USA, I mean, the proposal of the Trump administration to ban travel from China, for example, would have been probably the most effective way to respond to coronavirus. 
The argument of the entire U.S. left was that that was extraordinarily racist. Until mid-March, you had Joe Biden arguing, no, obviously we don't need to close the border. So there's plenty of blame to go around here. It's absurd for the people that advocated keeping the border open and keeping international air travel running to say, well, the president made this one mistake in delaying lockdown for a week. I mean, this is perhaps an issue that people shouldn't be flinging political darts about, but instead should be trying to solve. But if you want to throw darts, there are plenty to go around. The executive producer of the Vital Health Podcast is Dwayne Schultes. Our editor is Mark Brodine. Our project manager is Gwen O'Loughlin. The Vital Health Podcast is a production of Vital Transformation, LLC, copyright 2023.